the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And now over to trusty 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 4 to 16. I have spoken to you with great frankness, and I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has pronounced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted you are to us, to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving with him fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Well, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're so thankful that you have given us a word, uh, that we can know you, that we can know ourselves. And we pray, please, that by that word tonight, you might um, give us insight into our lives before you, uh, how we're to live them, how do we make sense of the world around us. Please um, do a work by your powerful Holy Spirit uh, in us through this word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, keep your Bible open there, at, uh, trusty 2 Corinthians 7. You've got, um, you've got a passage of the Bible that's got 
all kinds of very personal details and I, I always find it quite extraordinary that here we are looking at a bit of the Bible, something that was written 2,000 years ago, ancient, ancient history, about real people though, in a real context and situation, you've got mention of Paul of course, who's the, uh, the author, but you've got mention of him going through all kinds of troubles and distress and anxiety, fears, you've got mention of a man called Titus, uh, you've got a place called Macedonia, uh, you've got um, uh, someone who, verse 12, uh, who's wronged and been wronged, uh, encouragement from Titus and so on. You've got all these personal details and particulars about uh, an historical event and you kind of think to yourself, what has that got to do with me? What has all of that got to do with us here today? Um, well, one way into making sense of it, it's God's Word and so it speaks to us, of course, but one way into making sense of what God has said to us is verse 10. So grab your Bible, look at verse 10, because what Paul does in the midst of describing a very... Um, real personal situation with lots of emotion, I'm going to take you through that in a moment, he lands, he drops this verse that gives you this eternal, universal truth about all of humanity and all of life. Let me look at it with you, verse 10 there. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, in the midst of all this discussion about a personal situation and all these angst and so on, he drops that truth bomb, if you like, that godly sorrow leads to repentance, leads to salvation, leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Now, what does all of that mean and how does it work with us? Really, really important and helpful because what it tackles is the issue of guilt. Now, the word guilt's not there, the word sorrow's there, but that's what he means by sorrow, it's the emotions around guilt. And so tonight I want to talk with you about the whole topic of guilt and look at this passage and see if we can make some sense of it. The topic of guilt is one that's very relevant because most of us live with a lot of it. Most of you will be troubled by guilt quite regularly. Um, the whole set of emotions that come along with guilt, which I want to talk to you about in a moment. Um, uh, most of us struggle with it all of us hate it, no one wants to feel guilty, uh, it's a horrible emotion but there it is, it keeps sitting there and when you go to the world for wisdom on it, all you do is get confusion because when the world talks about the whole issue of guilt, on the one hand they're trying to tell us to stop having it, to get rid of it and stop being in places that produce it. If you hang around with people who produce guilt in you, keep, cut them off, get rid of them. If you go to that religious place that keeps producing guilt in you, get rid of it. You want to live without guilt. You want to be in a world where you can do what you want to do and no one judges you. You don't have to feel guilty about it. You can choose the moral life, the, the way you want to relate you, and just don't feel guilty about it. Get over it. Be that person who rises above. That's what the world says. But on the other hand, it says, here's a whole bunch of stuff that you need to feel more guilty about what you do with the environment, what you do with men and women, their relationships, what you do with race and there's a whole bunch of stuff that you actually now need to feel more guilty about than you ever have before. And so on the one hand, get rid of guilt, stop being guilty, but here's on the other hand, you need to feel more guilty about these things and what's going on? How do we make sense of it? How do we work through this whole issue of guilt? Well, I want to take you through that from chapter 7 tonight because what the Bible does is bring a profoundly different perspective on the whole issue really important to get hold of and here's what I want to do with it, I want to talk about um, that it does matter that you feel guilty, I'm sorry but feeling guilty is an important human emotion, 
It matters actually for your very life. I want to talk to you too about the fact that gospel ministries ought to help you feel guilt. They ought to actually produce, if they're going to be healthy gospel ministries, they need to produce guilt in you. But lastly, I want to talk about how it matters to get guilt right. To think carefully about what guilt is, how it functions, good guilt, bad guilt. We need to get into that towards the end. But let me take us through it. First thing is, uh, it matters that we know guilt and experience the feelings that come from guilt. Look at verse 10 again. Let me take you through this verse. Remember, this is the statement of universal truth that's dropped down. God, God, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I want you to just look closely at that verse. What he does is he, he joins three things together. Godly sorrow, repentance and salvation. And he says that salvation comes from repentance, which comes from godly sorrow. One leads to the next, leads to the next. Now, what salvation, what is he talking about there? He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about life with God forever and a new creation, where there'll be no more pain, mourning, suffering. Um, Not condemned, but saved. Not judged eternally in hell, but saved. He's talking about that kind of salvation. What leads to salvation? Well, he says repentance. Repentance is crucial because repentance there in verse uh, 10 leads to salvation. Now, what's repentance? Repentance is a change of mind. Repentance is a thing you do that um, is a a complete turnaround. Um, Now, properly speaking, uh, repentance is like you're going in one direction in life and you turn 180 degrees to go the opposite direction. Now, just get that right. You don't turn 360 degrees. I often have people over the years say, I did a whole 360 degree turn. It was fantastic. My life's changed. I said, well, you're back where you started from. You just don't, you didn't do well at algebra, did you, at school? No, but... um, so it's, you know, I'm going this way, uh, to repent is to turn around and change the direction I'm living, 180 degrees. What direction have I been going? I've been living for myself. I've been living as if life is about me. Life, I'm the most important person in life. That's how I have been living. And repentance is uh, just the simple idea that says, I realise now that that direction of life was wrong. I was actually made to live for God. He owns me. He made me for himself. And I'm to actually live for him. Repentance is that time when you go, I'm changing. I'm now going to no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me, for the risen Lord Jesus. You see, repentance is a change, it's a direction, decision you make. But what leads to repentance? What helps that whole change happen? Well, he says, sorrow. Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, as I'm going this direction, leads to repentance, change of life, which leads to salvation. Because to be saved, you need to repent. There's no salvation without repentance, without turning around. That doesn't mean that salvation is dependent on your goodness and you being better than other people, not at all. Turning around is about turning back to God and His grace and mercy established for us in Jesus on the cross, where He who knew no sin became sin for us, chapter 5. And so turning around is now trusting Him and His goodness for us as I come back under His rule. Without that repentance, no salvation. But what gives rise to repentance? Sorrow. Sorrow about the direction you're heading. Guilt. The feelings of guilt. But here's the thing about sorrow and guilt. 
Guilt itself actually properly isn't an emotion. It's a state you exist in. In a sense, you don't feel guilt, though we talk like that, and that's okay. Um, But properly speaking, you are either guilty or not guilty, whether you feel anything about it or not. You've either sped and uh, been guilty of speeding, or you haven't. Whether you feel anything about it, it's neither here nor there. You either have or you haven't been guilty. You see, that's, that's guilt, it's a state. But when you realise you're guilty, that you're in a state of guilt there can be a whole cluster of emotions that come along with it. Let me run you through them. When you feel guilty, when you've, when you've realised I am in the wrong, grief can come. Sorrow is what the word Paul uses here. Remorse, regret, why did I? Um, shame, we'll talk about shame in a moment. Grief, uh, a sense of hopelessness. Uh, I'm, I'm stuck in this place and I can't get out of it. I have this sense of guilt that I can't get beyond. It can also be uh, tears and fears and sleeplessness, helplessness. A whole bunch of emotions get caught up in the experience of realising you're in a state of guilt. Does that make sense? That's why the Apostle Paul, I take it, talks about sorrow, grief you'll see in the ESV. He's talking about the idea of the emotions that relate to being in a state of guilt. But notice this... Repentance is the key to being saved, that connects me to the grace of God in Jesus, it turns me back to Him, without there there's no salvation. But what is it that triggers my repentance? It's the sorrow, it's the grief, it's the, it's the regret and remorse and pain of now realising I'm offending God every day of my life. I'm living a life that's an offence to Him and I now feel the pain of that. Well, Paul says that's essential for you to actually turn your life around, to actually decide to now be with him and for him. And very often, without it, there'll be no repentance. Now, sometimes repentance can happen without the intense feelings. If you've turned back to God and not had those intense feelings, that's okay, as long as your turning is genuine. But very often it requires this sorrow, this grief at the sin that I'm in. Now, if all of this is true, the point that he's making in verse 10, um, it matters desperately that people come to an awareness of sorrow about their sin. It matters that people are brought to a sense of guilt, that they do feel guilty. Because it's one of God's key triggers that turns us to repentance and then brings us to salvation. In fact, Jesus himself says the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us. It's to bring conviction, sorrow, grief around our sin. You see, that's why churches, at the outset, that's why churches, healthy churches, won't just be places that inspire you and make you feel better and give you a sense of uplift and encouragement, affirmation. They'll also be places that leave you feeling guilty. If a church is doing its job, its ministry properly, there'll be much that happens there that arouses in you a sense of grief and sorrow and regret for your sin. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Because we need that to come to repentance, do you see? Now, this is the Apostle Paul. This was the kind of ministry he was engaged in. 
because he saw that it mattered so much. And so we've looked at verse 10, but let's look at now the context. Uh, you'll see there, let's pick it up, verse 8. You'll see Paul talks about a letter. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, what's this letter that he's talking about? Well, we, we know it as a severe letter, probably a letter of rebuke. That, the Paul, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It's probably not 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's likely that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Then he wrote this severe letter, this letter of rebuke. And then he's written this letter in response after he's got news. That middle letter is, it's hard, we don't know exactly what was in it. Um, it was a severe letter, it was a rebuke of some kind. We don't know what the circumstance was. It's possible when you reconstruct it that he might be reacting to the sexual immorality in the church that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the kind of sexual immorality that was serious uh, and consequential for the church. And it's likely that he's written to them to say, you need to deal with this. This is a little yeast that's going to work through the whole batch if you don't pay attention to fixing this up in your fellowship. And he comes pretty hard at them, it seems. He writes this difficult letter. Now, why does he write a letter like that? Because there are some things in life, if left unchecked, will kill us eternally, will kill us spiritually. And right here we're countercultural again. We're in a world, in a society, and you may have picked this up, that's actively trying to get rid of our Christian roots. We're in a country, in a Western world actually, that's become... Um, that's decided the reason we have all the problems in the world we have at present is because of our Christian heritage that's been oppressive and dominating us and telling us how we all ought to live and that's wrong, we ought to get rid of Christianity. Uh, And our world has got this kind of idea that Christianity has been the reason there's been so much guilt in the world and if we could just let people be, uh, then that's a better way to go. And if there's a God, He'll understand and He'll love us anyway and it'll all be okay. Let me say this, no profoundly wrong. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel that there's two roads, only two. There's a narrow road and a broad road. He says the broad road is easy, there are many people on it and that broad road, he says, is leading to destruction, condemnation and hell. He says there's another road, it's a narrow road, there's not many on it. It's a hard road to go on in one sense, but that's the only road that leads to life. Jesus right there says that there is a heaven and a hell and you can be on, you, you'll be on one or other of those roads and the majority of people will be on the broad road leading to destruction, only a few will be on the narrow. Jesus cuts right across the culture and says... Um, it, it, it's, it's not an assumption that you ought to hold on to that says everything will just be okay. There are some things that will put you on the broad road. There are things that will put you there and take you to death and destruction. And Paul, we need to know about them because eternity is at stake. Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 there, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What's he saying? He's saying to a group of people who profess Christian faith, who are part of the church, he's saying to them, it's possible that you can be in the church 
and so misunderstand the Christian faith, so misunderstand the Christian life, that you end up on the broad road, going to destruction. And those consequences are forever. And out of his great concern for them, he says, it matters that you get off the broad road onto the narrow, and I'm going to draw attention to the things that are taking you on the broad road. If you don't get off the broad road, you are lost. Friends, life is short. And the news about Dean, which many of you knew Dean and some of you will know the family. The news about Dean is, a, is a, in a sense, a wake-up call. Um, uh, we've been blessed as a family to know the Pinsacks for 26 years been part of their life for all of that time it's a great sadness that Dean has has gone he's gone to be with the Lord which is a great gift and a wonderful comfort but he's the family will grieve for many years to come the loss of a father or husband but friends your life will not just go on and on it will end one day and at the point of its finish nothing that you've done will matter Except that you've turned to Jesus, repented and turned to Jesus. It won't matter how well you did at, how much you enjoyed and whether you relate, won't matter. Rich, poor, successful, a dropout, won't matter. What will matter is have you repented and kept on the narrow road with Jesus. Life is short, getting your spiritual life right is everything. And if we love people... If we love people, we need to fight for them, that they stay on the narrow road. Did I mention to you the Drew Barrymore video the other week and Keanu Reeves? Did I tell you about the talk show where she was talking to him? Let me tell you what again, it's a great story. She was talking about how she's a lover, not a fighter. Everyone applauds. It's a beautiful sentiment to be a lover, not a fighter. Aren't those fighter people terrible? Keanu Reeves, quick as a whip, says something like, no, 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 if, if you're going to be a lover, you have to be a fighter. If you're going to be a lover, you have to fight for the one you love, for the thing you love. Otherwise, you don't really love it. And, and here's the deal. If we love people and we care about those around us, we will care, we will fight to see them stay on the narrow road. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. He loved these people. And so he wrote a difficult letter to them, even though it cost him greatly. Let me show you the love that's here in this chapter. It's extraordinary. Have a look there in verse uh, 3. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Could you say that of someone? Apostle Paul means it. He loves these Corinthians so much he would live or die with them. I've spoken to you with great frankness, I take great pride in you, I'm greatly encouraged by you and so on. And here's here's what's happened. When we came to Macedonia, verse 5, we had no rest because we were harassed at every point, conflicts on the outside, fears within. What are the fears within that he's talking about? Well, it becomes obvious that what he's talking about is... I wrote this letter to you, this hard letter that rebuked you, that called you to correction and fix things up and I've been deeply anxious about how you've received it. I love you so much that I wrote it, 
but I love you so much that I'm worried that you might have received it badly, that you might hate that I've written the letter and you might turn your backs on me and I'm, that distresses me completely and I'm full of fear within that you've turned your back on me because it hasn't, you haven't received the letter well at all. This is so bad for him, it's such an anxiety-producing thing for him. In chapter 2, look at chapter 2, verse 12, when I went to Troas to preach the Gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now, what is all that talking about? Um, uh, uh, Troas is sort of on this side of the sea. Uh, He goes there to preach the gospel. The Lord's blessing his ministry, but he's still anxious about the Corinthians and how they've received the letter because Titus was meant to come to him and tell him how it's all gone. He was waiting for Titus to come back from Corinth in Troas to tell him whether it's gone well or badly. He's anxious, distressed. No Titus. Great ministry, but he's so anxious about the Corinthians, he leaves all that behind and sails across to Macedonia into probably Philippi. And it's there, finally, that Titus catches up with him. Chapter chapter 7, verse 5, we came into Macedonia... Verse 6, but God who comforts the down, comfort us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern, so that my joy was greater than ever. You see what he's saying? Finally news, and news that you received the letter well. Paul is a man who loved people, deeply loved gave his life for people and the the whole episode of sending this letter cut him to the heart it was a huge risk that he took he was anxious about how it would go because he loves people so much this is not I don't know if you've ever picked up a crazy notion that Paul is this kind of hard-nosed hard brutal person who just fires off angry things everywhere and is bulletproof walks through life untouched that's kind of the caricature people have of Paul but that's not Paul at all that's not the real Paul Paul was a soft man courageous strong but soft-hearted deeply emotional and concerned for the people he pastored and so look at verse 8 even if I caused you sorrow by my letter I don't regret it though I did regret it I saw that my letter hurt you. He's written this email and he's kind of going, should I push send? Oh, if I push send, how will they take it? How will it go? And he pushes it. And then he lives for the next months in deep anxiety about how it's all gone. But he sees finally that it's gone well. He is a vulnerable man, a gentle man, a loving man. But he's got the kind of love that's strong enough that he's able to say what needs to be said when, it's, when it needs to be said, even though it costs him personally. And this is just to reinforce the point I'm trying to make, actually, that, that Paul's making. There are some things that matter so much, spiritually, eternally, that it's more important that we say something to someone about them than that we keep the peace. If you see your brother or sister sliding... It matters that something is said at the right time and in the right place and in the right way. But to just let friends drift away from the Christian faith is to leave them to hell. We need to engage and speak to one another, encourage one another. But 
Learn from Paul about how to do that too, actually. Um, Don't speak to friends about what's happening for them if really it's about you. You know know what I mean? Like sometimes, um, you know, I'm angry about what you're doing and really it's my issue, not your issue, and I need to get this off my chest. No, 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 don't use your friend and critiquing them as therapy for yourself. Go and find a counsellor. Come and talk to one of us. Deal with what's in your own heart before you go and talk to friends about stuff. Because the Apostle Paul did it out of a context of great love for them, even though it cost him. It wasn't about him getting it off his chest. So take great care if you do raise stuff with friends. Um, Think very hard about whether it's appropriate and wise. Get counsel with it to see whether this is the path that goes. And when you do it, do do it out of great concern for them and do it gently that you might see them restored and encouraged. And how do you receive it? If a friend comes and says to you, look, I'm concerned that you're sleeping with your girlfriend. And if you pursue that path, it'll destroy you. How do you receive that kind of comment from a friend? Well, the Corinthians received it with um, a sense of, we don't want to be those people. We want things to be right. If we've done the wrong thing, we're earnestly concerned to fix it up, be that person. It matters that we feel guilty because guilt is good for us, it's critical for us. Because it brings repentance and so salvation. But lastly, it matters that we think about the kind of guilt. It matters what kind of guilt. And here I want to show you some of what Paul teaches, which is quite profound about the whole topic of guilt, just as we uh, do this last piece together. Um, Look with me at verse 9. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. Do you see he's speaking of this same principle again? For you became sorrowful as God intended... And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Now notice that. You became sorrowful as God intended. There's a kind of guilt feeling, sorrow, that God intends and there's a kind He doesn't intend. It's worth just pausing and reflecting on that for a moment. There's some kind of guilt that we feel that we ought not feel. There's a kind God wants us to feel and there's a kind that we just make up. And what I mean by that is there's a bunch of stuff in our life that we feel guilty about that we shouldn't feel guilty about. Lots of us are feeling guilty about things that are just not wrong and not God's not concerned and you ought not feel guilty about them. We have an overly sensitive conscience. Just on that, conscience is like a, um, conscience is like a smoke detector, a smoke alarm. They only go off when the fire happens and the smoke comes up and hits it. They don't go off if there's no smoke. Conscience is like that. Your conscience only makes you feel guilty when you're doing something you believe is wrong, you see. If you're not doing anything you believe is wrong, then the conscience is quiet, it doesn't do anything. But here's our challenge. Many of us have consciences that are overly sensitive or been um, miscalibrated. And here's where I'm going to give you some illustrations and I'm fearful as I do this. So let's see how we go, right? Um, I used an illustration this morning that made sense then, but I don't think you'll... Have you ever heard of eating meat on Fridays and that being a problem? Has anyone cared about eating meat on Fridays as a problem? I don't think any of you even know. Yeah, people in the morning do. they grown up through a Catholic faith where you ought not eat meat on a Friday and they've got a great... No, 
Let me pick one that I think you might have a conscience about. Using plastic straws. I think lots of people have a very serious conscience about using plastic straws such that they feel guilty that they're using plastic straws. And there's this horror of guilt around, oh, how can, you ought not, if I have accidentally, wow, it's a terrible guilt. Don't feel guilty. <laughs> um, you might have a conviction that it's not a good thing to do, but it's not worth your guilt. Just decide not to use them, sure, but don't feel guilty of them. You've got an oversensitive conscience. And the hypocrisy of our world, and here's where it gets dangerous, the hypocrisy of our world that's teaching us to feel guilty about plastic straws, sure, there's an environmental issue and you need to pay attention to that, I'm not denying that, but don't feel guilty about it, just get rid of it and move on. But we have this whole conscience that we're meant to have about plastic straws, and yet at the same time we have a society that's endorsing late-term abortions. Now, I don't want to get into the discussion about the whole when abortion and all of it, but late-term abortions. Abortions within a week of delivery, within the last month of delivery. We've got a society that's saying you can kill a baby in the womb as long as it's still in the womb and it's a month before birth. That's okay. Don't have a moral conscience about that. Don't be upset about that. But gee, make sure you never use plastic straws. Do you see how the conscience is totally warped? Now, I'm not going to discuss the whole what about the earlier, is there any time that this, but late-term abortions. There was a woman online who, one day before her due date, pregnancy, massive womb, extended, and written on her belly for all to see, not a human. The baby's, the baby could survive outside the womb. The baby is fully formed a day to go. We have no conscience about that, but straws. Now, friends, my point I'm making, I don't want to distract us, but I probably have already, right? I don't want to distract us onto the issue of abortion, but I want to make the point that um, God, there's an intended conscience that you're, there's things you're meant to feel guilty about and some things you're not. What are the God-intended things? Grow to actually start to have your conscience reformed and transformed so that it goes off when it should and not when it shouldn't. Learn to calibrate your conscience by the mind of Christ through the Scriptures so that you feel guilty when you ought, as God intends, and not when you ought not. So for some of you, that means getting over a lot of stuff because you just keep getting guilty about things you ought not. God gives us great freedoms in Christ, we have a lot of freedom. Enjoy it. Learn where it applies and where it doesn't. As God intends. But last thing to say. There's a kind of guilt, verse 10, that's godly and a kind of guilt that's worldly. He says there that godly sorrow brings repentance, worldly sorrow brings death. What's the difference between the two? There's a kind of guilt, feelings of guilt, a kind of sorrow, grief, sadness, remorse that goes nowhere. You just feel guilty all the time and it constantly trips you up and brings you down and it brings despair and depression. It's a kind of guilt that sees there's no way forward, there's no way out, there's no hope for me, I'm hopeless, I'm without any hope. 
I'm, I'm a wretch who can never be loved by anyone. That's the kind of guilt that's worldly guilt. And why? Why does guilt operate like that? Because it fails to see grace. You see, there are two kinds of guilt feelings. One's worldly sorrow, one's godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow happens outside the context of grace. Godly sorrow happens within the context of grace. That is, it happens in aware that there's a God who is full of grace. There's a God who loves, who delights to show mercy and forgive. And when you go through sorrow and guilt in the context of knowing there's a God who delights to show mercy, who loves to show mercy, it doesn't just reluctantly give it to you but delights to show mercy when you go through guilt when the spirit of God convicts you of sin and guilt then in that context of grace you go repent come back he loves it he wants me to come back again and again and again he loves to show mercy in that kind of context sorrow becomes godly sorrow because it causes you to turn back knowing that God will have you all the time. What a wonderful blessing. Now, you know He'll have you all the time because He sent His Son to die for you. And if He did that while you were still enemies of His, Romans chapter 5, how much more will He now love you that you're His friend? If He has forgiven you while you were against Him, if He sent His Son to die in your place take on my sin and give me his righteousness while I was an enemy, now that I've been cleansed and purified by the blood of Jesus, how much more will he forgive you? Again and again and again. So in your guilt, turn to repent and come back every day. That's how godly sorrow works in the context of grace. But it also works in the context of looking outward. Godly sorrow looks outward towards the person wronged rather than inward like worldly guilt. Worldly guilt looks inward. It just sees the issue as me. Someone said I've hurt someone else. I now just feel bad about me. Whereas godly sorrow, someone's been hurt by your actions. Godly sorrow goes, what have I done? How can I help them? How can I establish restoration? How can I make things right for them? Not for me. It's not about me. Godly sorrow is about others. Worldly sorrow is about me. Worldly sorrow runs with a thing called shame. Let me explain shame to you. Shame is a dreadful emotion and it's that feeling when you're embarrassed that others have found out. You might have known you've done something wrong, but you'd feel no shame about it because no one knows. But when people find out, now I'm ashamed. Why? Because I'm, I'm horrified that they might think I'm less than what I want them to think. I have a certain perception of myself and what I am as a human, and I've got it in my own mind about myself, and I want you to think of me the same way. And when I found out... Shame kicks in because I now think that you're going to think less of me than I want you to think of me. Do you see what's happening? It's all about me. It's a destructive emotion that will destroy you and take you down. Godly sorrow is more concerned about the glory of the God that I've dishonoured, 
the good of the people that I've harmed and less about self. It's a great gift of the Spirit. You know, we're in a world that's living in an epidemic of guilt because the world's got nowhere to go. There's no forgiveness in our world. If you make a wrong step online, smashed. That's why you're all so concerned about what to say and when to say it. If I get it wrong, what's going to happen to me? I'll be cancelled. There's no forgiveness in our world. And so people live with guilt. And they've got nowhere to go with it and so it just gets buried and we bury our guilt. And what happens then is the guilt just spins out into other places and destroys us and eats us alive, eats our bones. But godly guilt... Godly guilt happens in the context of the grace of God that enables me to find somewhere to go and find forgiveness and grace and mercy. So repent and come back quickly. And it helps me look outward towards the honour of God and the good of others. So I'm not consumed with myself. So the lesson for us tonight. The beauty of the Christian faith. The beauty of the Christian faith. I, I just want to keep saying this to us, friends that there's nowhere else to go to find a message like the Christian faith. Nowhere. Where you'll find the truth about a God who is holy and righteous and full of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. A God who will work in your life to bring guilt, but He will bring the conviction of guilt because He wants you to repent and find life. He wants good for you. Don't fight it. Don't fight those feelings. He wants to encourage us to care about each other in the spiritual world that we live in and what matters most so that we do speak to one another. Speak carefully and wisely. Receive it with grace. You know, people tell me I've done things wrong. I know you can't believe it, right? But all the time. And I was, you know, it's not always easy. But one of the things that's most easy about it is... Whatever you think I've done wrong, I know I've done 10 times more than that. You don't know the half of it. And so that helps me actually receive it and and heed it and listen to it and take it on board and work out what I need to do about it and feel the guilt and the remorse and the regret and yet let that turn me back to God and say, praise God, I'm living with you on your grace, not by my performance. Praise God that Jesus died for me, you love me so much that you'll have me. Ah, I can sleep again. There's nothing like it in all the world. The Christian message. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us appreciate the extraordinary grace that you have for us, that we might let your Spirit work in our hearts and lives to convict us of sin, that we might be soft and warm to brothers and sisters who encourage us and speak to us, that you might hold us close to yourself all our days by bringing us constantly to repentance, turning to you to find forgiveness and mercy and love and grace, that we might know you into eternity, the holy God, the God of love. Uh, Thank you for Jesus, thank you for what he's done and thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen.